When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who had this advice about nuclear arms control negotiations back during the Cold War. You arrive late, jab your finger in the Soviet negotiator's chest, and say, fuck you, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So there's one question we haven't talked about much on this show, which is what kind of president Donald Trump would be. I haven't talked about it because it just seems like a preposterous idea. Trump is so totally unqualified, so devoid of actual policies, so lacking in the kind of temperament and experience and the team he would need to be president that it just seems absurd to even consider it. It's also, frankly, too awful to contemplate. A ban on Muslims, torture, racial profiling, a wall paid for by Mexico, a trade war with China that would wreck the economy, Peter Thiel on the Supreme Court. These are idiotic ideas, and it's almost demeaning to have to talk about how Trump might or might not go about implementing them. But not taking the idea of President Trump seriously doesn't reduce the risk that there will ever be one. To the contrary, it lets people live in the fantasy that Trump would shake things up and be tough and provide nonstop entertainment for the whole world. That's why I'm glad my guest today has put the time and energy into asking what Trump would do and could do as president. I'll be back with Evan Osnos of The New Yorker right after we do the tweets. I never met former Defense Secretary Robert Gates. He knows nothing about me, but look at the results under his guidance. A total disaster. Wacky at New York Times Dowd, who hardly knows me, makes things up that I never said for her boring interviews and column. A neurotic dope. The failing New York Times has gone nuts that crooked Hillary is doing so badly. They are willing to say anything has become a laughing stock rag. Under the leadership of Obama and Clinton, Americans have experienced more attacks at home than victories abroad. 
Time to change the playbook. Once again, someone we were told is okay turns out to be a terrorist who wants to destroy our country and its people. How did he get through the system? Crooked Hillary has been fighting ISIS or whatever she's been doing for years. Now she has new ideas. It's time for a change. My guest today is Evan Osnos. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of an article in the new issue called President Trump's First Term, in which he tries to imagine what a President Trump might actually do in office. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. So I think an alternate title for this article would have been Thinking the Unthinkable. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, people have really hesitated to go here because it seems so preposterous, but there's a 30, 35%, 25% chance of him winning, however you want to put the odds. It's close enough that we better think about it. Yeah, this began, I mean, for a long time, people had done sort of satire or sci-fi or farce, uh, or on the other side, people had imagined in a kind of fan fiction form, the idea of a Trump presidency. But we started to look at the numbers over the summer, and there was a sense that whether or not it would get as close as it has become, that this was a worthy exercise because it tells us something not only about Trump's candidacy, but also about the nature of the presidency and what a president can or cannot do. So there's a lot that a president can't do without Congress. But you write that Trump could achieve many objectives on his own. A president has the unilateral authority to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran, to order a ban on Muslims, and to direct the Justice Department to give priority to certain offenses with an eye to specific targets. I mean, take any one of those. Let's start with the ban on Muslims. Trump could just do that as an executive order? What would happen? Well, what he would, there's different ways that he could frame it, but one of the things that he could do would be not to use religious language. He would frame it in some sort of geographical designation. So, for instance, uh, he could say that the United States faces an urgent grave threat because of some emanating risk from Egypt, and therefore he is suspending migration from Egypt. He has that power. That is not uh, in dispute. And then the question simply becomes, how broadly would he apply it? Would he apply it to one country, two countries, ten countries? Would he apply it to Europe? The legal authority exists. Right. And the question also becomes, you know, does anybody stop him? How fast, in effect, can somebody bring a challenge in court to be able to to halt it? And what's the answer to that? And does it go into effect pending a court ruling? No, it doesn't. uh, It goes into effect immediately. Right. Uh, this is a, this is one of the most important points I, I just sort of did not anticipate was, um, and it's intuitive, but in some ways it needed to be explained to me explicitly, which is that one of the advantages of the presidency is that they have the first mover advantage. And, and this has been discussed in the legal literature that when a president does something, it is a fait accompli until the other branches of government uh, can motivate a response. And that takes a long time. I mean, Eric Posner is a great uh, legal scholar at the University of Chicago had said at one point to me, that's the thing you have to remember is that courts are slow and Congress is slow. And so if you take as one example, under George W. Bush, the 
decision to begin to collect bulk phone metadata, which was done by executive order, uh, there were, in fact, objections raised at the time. There were lawsuits filed, but it took about 15 years before Congress (laughs) was able uh, to begin to pare that back. And even if a lot of things don't take that long, Trump could clog them up, right? I mean, he could he could sign 25 executive orders his first day that raise constitutional questions. And it's very unlikely the courts could work through the bulk of those in years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's one of the things that that the Trump campaign is actually doing is what's described as the first day project, which is a plan to do a kind of uh, call it an executive shock and awe campaign, in effect, which is to come into office and to issue, in fact, the number is 25 uh, executive orders of one kind or another. And it was described to me by a, a Republican very close to the campaign as uh, with that by signing these documents in several hours, Donald Trump could erase the Obama presidency. That's hyperbole to one degree in the sense that it takes up, there's a process here. If something has gone past the rulemaking phase, then there is a period for public comment and so on and so on. But by doing it, by issuing the order, it begins the process of undoing what in some cases are cornerstones of the Obama presidency. What happens when Trump does something Republicans have accused Obama of doing that is not really enforcing laws he doesn't like? So when it comes to Obamacare, it may still be funded. But what if he says, we're essentially not going to implement it anymore, or we're not going to try to implement it effectively? Can he do that? Can the president sort of launch a sit-down strike when it comes to laws he doesn't agree with? He can do it. And in fact, they're planning to do it. I mean, they have said that to me in the course of these interviews, that one of the things that they're planning to do is to use, in effect, sort of the optionality of the president to decide how they would for instance, enforce environmental regulation. So one of the ways that you can undermine the effectiveness of the EPA is by installing specific administrators, specific high-level officials who take it on as their explicit project to limit the scope of governance and also to limit the you know, the vigilance and the pace of prosecution of, uh, of offenses. Um, and then the other thing they can do, which I think hasn't really received quite as much attention as it may, uh, as it might merit, is that they told me that they're inspired by something that Mike Pence, the VP candidate, did when he was named governor, when he became governor of Indiana, which is that he imposed a moratorium on regulation. And there are some exceptions that he made for sort of health and safety, uh, very, very urgent things that had to be passed. But what he did, in effect, was have a, a pretty broad chilling effect on any attempt to try to expand the regulatory function of government agencies. So, uh, that's something that they believe they can do at the federal level. And I haven't heard an objection. Anybody explain to me why they couldn't do it. And that's just an executive order. That's just an executive order. In Mike Pence's case, he, he established a small agency to help to help implement it. Both uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama have resorted to have use of uh, executive orders because they've been blocked so extensively by Congress. But live by executive orders, die by executive orders, an ex-president in the stroke of a pen can undo whatever you did. Yeah, they, they really can. And Steve Moore, who's an official campaign advisor uh, to Donald Trump, said to me, he said, you know, sort of dismissively, he said, look, I don't think the left fully understood that when Obama relied so much on executive order that he was then vulnerable to the possibility of having these things overturned. I think, actually, the Obama administration is fully aware of the vulnerability associated with using executive order, but they believe those were the best tools at the time. But it is true. By now, there is now, I think, a greater 
culture of executive authority, a, a, a sort of broader understanding of what a president can do. And on top of it, there have been legislative changes that have actually endowed the presidency with greater authority than it had 50 or 100 years ago. So even though there are, of course, constitutional checks on a presidency, I think most people, and legal scholars will say this to you, that the conventional understanding of the bounds and the legal constraints on a, president, uh, on a presidency are, are kind of misunderstood. There is, in fact, much more that a president can legally do without interference. If Trump were to win the election, a lot of Republicans who've been in positions in previous administrations would face this kind of interesting dilemma, including Republicans who've been against Trump. It's do you go into the administration and try to limit the damage and retain some sense of responsibility? Or do you take a position that this guy's beyond the pale, we won't help him? What do you think they'll do? And what do you think the right thing to do is? Well, a president has the right to appoint about 4,000 people all across the government in, in various positions. The in Trump's case, he's facing a, a, a particular problem, which is that some of the most experienced senior Republican statesmen have publicly said they will not support him. There's been, as we know, of course, this letter with 50 Republican national security officials who say they would never support Trump. So what that means is that there is a, it has in effect forced him to look at a younger generation. I spoke to a number of these younger Republican officials of one kind or another, or people who uh, have been working in the think tank world who have been invited by the transition team or are being vetted by the transition team. And they're facing this, in a sense, a moral question, because some of them recognize that Donald Trump's candidacy has elements with which they violently disagree, but they believe that there is a difference, that if somebody is elected, uh, if they're not just a candidate anymore, that if they're actually elected, that maybe that becomes a patriotic thing to go into government. As one of them said to me, he said, look, the question is, is Trump... Berlusconi, or is he Mussolini? And if he's Mussolini, is he Mussolini in 1933 or 1941? Uh, you know, to some people, that sounds like parsing the analogies pretty carefully to try to explain it to themselves. Michael Chertoff, who was, uh, has, you know, served both Presidents Bush as uh, he was Secretary of Homeland Security under uh, George W. Bush, he has very explicitly been counseling Republicans not to join a Trump administration. And what he said to me was, look, people are calling me, they're asking me for advice, and what I tell them is, you're going to need to take a very long look at your conscience and decide if you're kidding yourself. Yeah, and I admire that stand Chertoff is taking. But, you know, for example, uh, I'll give you another instance, Richard Hawes, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. I think he knows Trump is is a dangerous idiot, but he has refused to rule out going in. And I think the logic there is he would need someone like me as Secretary of State to prevent the utter disaster that would follow otherwise. Do you think that's the right, keeping that option open is the right thing to do? Or should you diminish the chance of Trump getting elected that you get from every responsible Republican or nearly every responsible Republican saying this guy is so beyond the pale that we would not work for him under any circumstances? I'll say at the outset, I think that the sentiment that you described, Richard Haas's position, is widely felt here in Washington. And if, in fact, Trump was elected, I think you would find a lot of people would go into his administration more than you would expect. You know, I spoke to a friend the other day who works at the American Enterprise Institute, and he said, uh, look, this is Washington. People are going to go into the jobs. Um, on the other hand, I think I'll defer to, to something else that Chertoff said to me on the question of should, which is, he said, if you go in on the belief that you will be able to moderate this person, 
you will either end up being frustrated and leaving the government and leaving this administration. If, if I should say, you know, if you have a fundamental disagreement with this person's values, you will either end up leaving that administration or you'll end up being in service of a project that you will then find it very hard to defend. There is pretty good literature on whether or not presidents change once they get into office and whether or not they do the things that they say they're going to do. And sure, we will always find exceptions when people have changed around the edges or even abandoned uh, important promises. But what you find overall is that they they tend to do the things that they said they would as candidates. Yeah, you actually have a, a statistic I'd never seen in your piece that you said, I think, from the basically in the 20th century, from like Woodrow Wilson to Jimmy Carter, presidents kept like over 70 percent of their promises. I mean, that's an amazing statistic. Yeah, they kept 73 percent of their promises. This was a study that was done by Michael Kukonis in 1984. And further studies since then have confirmed that same phenomenon. In some cases, it's 70 percent, depending on which presidents they look at. In some cases, it's more. Um, The thing that I think is what's important about that, particularly for this race, is that perhaps the only thing that unifies opponents and supporters of Donald Trump across the country right now is that neither side actually really believes that he would do some of the most radical things that he says. If you look at the polls, for instance, only 42% of Republicans believe that he would build a wall, which is, after all, his central campaign. Yeah, it's promise. his central promise. I mean, if he doesn't build a wall, what credibility does he have, period? But what credibility would he have on any of his other promises? I mean, that's number one, two, and three. Right. I, I mean, I think I think there's a political explanation for the fact that he will absolutely build a wall. And Newt Gingrich, who's his political advisor now, who is, in a sense, Trump's kind of eyes and ears on the Hill, so Gingrich, former speaker, said to me, he has to build a wall. He has to make a very, very, very strong effort to do it because it's the essence of his ability to operate in Washington. Uh, now, in practical terms, what does he actually get? Once you talk to enough people about what he might conceivably get, the answer is that he will probably end up not with a full-fledged wall. The Border Patrol doesn't actually even want a wall because they say that's harder to police, what they would want and what they would permit and, and what he would probably go for is a, an extension, a symbolic extension, in effect, of the 600-mile fence, which is already on the border was uh, that began construction in 2006. And, Evan, I think that brings us to the last question, the ultimate question. Could Trump launch a nuclear war? And the question is, not just does he have the legal authority to do it, but what would happen in likelihood if he tried to do it? Well, the the nature of our nuclear arsenal is unique in one respect, which is that as far as we know, on the basis of all available public information, the president of the United States is the only person who has the legal authority to launch a nuclear weapon. And what that means is that, in fact, the steps to do so are not as elaborate as you might think. He does not have, he or she does not have to seek counsel or advice or intervention from anybody else. Now, That doesn't mean that it's impossible to interrupt an order. In fact, it's happened on a couple of occasions in U.S. history when senior White House officials have determined in their view that they have to do something to try to interfere with a president's ability to launch a nuclear weapon. The first one was in 1969 when uh, Richard Nixon's secretary of defense, Melvin Laird, believed that Nixon was making a potentially catastrophic decision. Nixon believed that if he made the Soviets think that he was irrational under what was known as the Mad Men Theory. The Mad Men Theory, right. Exactly, that they might um, 
that they might be less likely to challenge the United States. And so what he did was he ordered Mel Laird to put U.S. nuclear forces on high alert, which meant, in effect, to send B-52s to fly in the direction of the Soviet Union. It was an extraordinarily provocative thing to do. And Laird objected. Laird dissembled. He said at the time, well, actually, there is a previously scheduled military exercise. He basically made up an excuse, and he hoped that Nixon would give it up. In the end, Nixon did not give it up. Nixon uh, stayed on it, and Laird did it. Laird actually ordered the exercise, and in the end, it turned out to be very dangerous. There were B-52s that were loaded with thermonuclear weapons that ended up flying too close to each other. And uh, there was an after-action report, which later said that it almost caused an accident. Evan, you've uh, you've taken a vague nightmare and made it very uh, specific and real, and uh, I am going to sleep less well tonight for it. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks, and I'm sorry for doing so, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. And John D. Domenico is always our voice of Donald Trump. And hey, I have an announcement. Trumpcast is doing not one, but two live shows. The first is in Los Angeles, actually in Anaheim, as part of the Now Hear This podcast festival on October 28th. The other is an election night party that Trumpcast is throwing with the brilliant Mike Pesca and The Gist. It's going to be really fun. It's at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and we're going to have all kinds of guests, comedians, musicians, and many, many excellent craft beers. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can buy tickets for the election night party now at a 30% discount. And if you're not, you'll be able to get them soon, though it might already be sold out by then. So you should join Slate Plus, which is also offering a 30% discount as part of our celebration of Slate's 20th anniversary. And have you left us a rating and review in iTunes? You've only got 47 days left to do it. And if you wait any longer, it's not going to do us much good. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hillary Clinton is taking the day off. She needs the rest. Sleep well, Hillary. See you at the debate.